0: Our passage today is Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which suppresses
1: Good morning. Well, as you, depending on how much coffee you had this morning, you may or may not recognize me from a few minutes ago. Um, As Dan said, my name is Bevan Rigg. I'm one of four men who recently completed the Pastors Leadership Institute program here at Windsor Community Church. And as part of that, um, I'll be bringing the message to you this morning. To tell you just a little bit about myself um, I grew up in a family where we didn't go to church. We weren't part of the church. I did not know the gospel. My wife, my, um, my mother, not my wife, this is Colorado. My mother is an atheist, and uh, my dad dabbled in Mormonism for a number of years. <clears throat> By the time I was in college, I was a hardened atheist. I was convinced there was no God. I hated the idea of God. I was really a, a de-evangelist. I, I wasn't just content with... Um, my own disbelief, I wanted everybody else to believe that way as well. About halfway through college, uh, God really changed my heart. Um, <clears throat> he convinced me that I'm a sinner. He convinced me that the Bible is true. He convinced me of the truth of the gospel. He led me to repentance and faith. <clears throat> what we're talking about today, I've titled this, uh, this message, Press On to Peace, uh, because that's something that was really absent my life before I became a believer and the way I reacted to things. Um, Met my wife at church, great place to meet a wife. Um, We've been married for about five years. We've got two kids. Clara's three and Eugene's one and a half. If you work in the nursery, you know that our children are enormous. Yes, she really is three. Yes, he really is about 18 months old. Um, My wife looked at me one time and she said, I just don't understand why our children are so tall. And I was standing up looking at her thinking, look at me. <laughs> um, but I do want to, in all sincerity, I want to thank all of you that help out in the children's ministry in, in any capacity, whether it's checking people in, um, dealing with my daughter whenever she's being frustrating, or with the older kids. It is such a blessing to know that we have those, those other adults that are modeling for them what a Christ-like faith is, that tell them about Jesus. And uh, it's so freeing for, for my wife and I, I know, for all the other parents to be able to, to come to service and not be distracted with the thought of, oh no, what is my toddler doing now? <clears throat> so thank you very much. I'm grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to open the Bible with you this morning. Before we jump into the text, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you for you are worthy of praise. You are, you are mighty, you are wonderful. We thank you for your gospel. I thank you, Lord, that, um, that you convinced me of the truth of those precious words. I thank you that what we sang about is true, that at the cross, um, that's where Jesus' blood ran red and our sins were washed white as snow. I pray this morning, Lord, that, um, that you would just guard our minds from distractions and from the, from the cares that we have. Please help us to focus on your word, Lord. And I pray that you'd send your spirit, that you'd be active in this church body and among your people to convince of the truth of the the scripture. And I pray that you would just also give us a great comfort of knowing that you are the God of peace. Lord, please protect me from error. And I pray that you would guard my heart against the temptation for pride or the desire to impress. And Lord, if there's anything that I've prepared um, um, that I that you would not have me speak now. I pray that I would just pass over it and uh, that you would build up your people here and now. We love you, Lord. Amen. Would you say that your life is characterized by a joy in God and a peace in all circumstances? Or like me, do you often tend to worry, fret, try to control your circumstances, be anxious? When you face bad circumstances and an uncertain future, do you respond in a way that makes it apparent that you're a Christian? Do you know how to respond when trials come and anxiety strikes? The text before us this morning is full of practical application to our lives. And I hope for you it will answer those questions and give give you the confidence of who our Lord is. In the letter to the Philippians, Paul encourages the church to rejoice in God to rejoice in who he is and what he has done. He then charges the Philippians to trust God. We can trust him because he is faithful, because he is powerful, because his promises are true. Paul reassures the Philippians that they will receive the peace of God, regardless of circumstances in the midst of anxieties and worry for the future, and that we take hold of this peace from God through prayer. Paul then commands the church in Philippi to focus or dwell on gospel truths and common, God's common grace, and follow his example of pressing on in the faith. We, just like the Philippian church, need to apply these truths to our lives. Our lives are often busy, worry-filled, and anxious. When we apply these words to our lives, we will receive the peace of God from our Lord, who is the God of peace. All too often, <clears throat> I'm not a piece of the circumstances God has put me in. I'm an anxious person. I worry often about my family's safety, my wife's health, my bank account, my retirement account. That one's pretty small. My investment account, also small. Anything with an account in it, I worry about. My utility bill account, even though it's on auto pay. I worry about a lot of things. I worry about my reputation at work, my standing with my boss. I worry about my extended family's rejection of Christ. Most of my family are not believers. Most of all, I worry about my inability to know what tomorrow will bring. I like to control things almost as much as I like to worry about them. In my fallen sinful condition, I often worry about what will happen in the future. And in so doing, I fail to trust God in both my present circumstances and with my future condition. As individual Christians, we are more susceptible to certain sins and have a lesser struggle against others. One of the things that I'm going to address here is the sin of anxiety. Our struggle with sin overall, is a universal condition. Even for the believer in Christ, we are not going to be free from this war until we're united with Christ in heaven. I struggle most against pride and worry. And worry that you'll discover how prideful I really am. And sometimes pride over how well I do it, covering up how much I worry especially at work, when I'm presenting at Loan Committee. I'm a banker by trade. How often I have a confident appearance and demeanor, and I'm just hoping so much that no one will ask a question about my presentation. Let me be clear. The anxiety that Paul is addressing here is a sinful anxiety. It's a lack of trust in God. This sinful anxiety is at war with the peace that God desires to give us. So what does this mean for you? Brothers and sisters, fellow Christians, I just want to encourage you, this passage this morning does apply to you. You are sinners just like me. The extent to which you struggle with the sin of anxiety may be less than what I do. It could be far greater. But this passage does apply to you. Now, I want to acknowledge up front that some believers have a a medical struggle with something that touches on the sin of anxiety, whether it's being anxious, panic attacks, depression, a bipolar condition, or something else. It's your battle, it's your struggle. If this is you, please, please hear me. This passage has something for you this morning. I may not know what your struggle is. I'm sure I don't fully understand it. But you do have a God who understands fully. You have a God who knows what you experience. You have a God who knows what you suffer, knows what you struggle with. You have a God who loves you and cares for you, And I'm convinced he has something for you this morning for your good. Let's go to the Bible now and see what God has to say through the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 4. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 4 through 7. You can follow along in your Bibles um, or look on the screen ahead of me or above me, wherever it is. Back there. Paul writes, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. In verse 4, we're told to rejoice. Paul exhorts us to rejoice not once but twice. He says, again, I will say rejoice. Again and again in Philippians, Paul is encouraging his readers to rejoice as they press on in the gospel. This charge to rejoice is specific. We are to rejoice in the Lord. Paul here is repeating what he said in chapter 3, verse 1, where the letter begins to shift to the practical exhortations. He says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Joy is a prominent theme in Philippians. And this joy is never a vague or nebulous idea of, of thinking happy thoughts or focusing on good uh, Paul is specific in what brings him joy and what he rejoices in. Paul talks about his joy in prayer on behalf of the Philippians, chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Paul repeatedly declares his joy that the gospel of Christ is proclaimed in chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. What then? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. Paul also desires that uh, the Philippians, and, and by extension us, should have joy in the faith. Chapter 1, verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. Even the prospect of Paul's death, being persecuted for declaring the good news of Jesus, wasn't enough to rob him of his joy. Chapter 2, verses 17 through 18, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, on the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. What do you think Paul means when he uses the word joy or talks about rejoicing? Rejoicing. <clears throat> He's talking about a joy that's not dependent on circumstances, comforts, or worldly happiness. This joy can only come from the Lord. It is otherworldly, it comes from God. One Bible commentator offers this definition of joy that, that I found helpful. He says, Joy is the deep down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory. I'm going to go ahead and read that again. Joy is the deep down confidence that God is in control of everything for the believer's good and his own glory. So we see that joy is not contingent upon our present circumstances or even our eager anticipation for the good things that we think or we hope tomorrow will bring. Biblical joy, then, is rooted and grounded in what we know is true about God and our relationship with him through the gospel. So to rejoice in the Lord must be pretty easy for the Christian, right? After all, we have a lot to rejoice in. We know that God made us. We know that God sent his son to pay for our sin on the cross. We know that Christ gives us his perfect righteousness when we respond in faith. We know that Christ gives us um, this relationship that we have with the father and that he gives us his spirit in us. We're adopted into his forever family. And we have the certain certain, um, assurance that in the future when we die or the Lord returns, We will be with him for all eternity in perfect fellowship, free from all sin, free from all worries. So, a lot for us to rejoice in. But I think that if this command to rejoice in the Lord were easy, Paul would not have to repeat himself and repeat himself so often. He repeats himself because we forget this. Paul repeats himself because at times it can be hard for the Christian to find his heart content and joyful in the Lord. In the midst of this fallen world that we live in, Paul goes on in verse 5 to say, Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. The word that the ESV translates as reasonableness is also rendered a couple different ways in some other English versions. It could be moderation, gentleness, considerate, graciousness, gentle spirit. This is the forbearing, gentle, generous spirit that we see modeled for us perfectly in Christ. Uh, a, a gentleman who's, whose name I'm going to butcher just like I did in first service, Johannes Bugenhagen, um, it's a really good name, says of this reasonableness or gentleness to all. So now Paul wants you to offer this gentleness not only to the few, but to all people. Yes, even to your enemies, together with those who want you outlawed. And he teaches this gentleness throughout the whole epistle. It contradicts the flesh, which says... Yes, so you say, but if I'm gentle to everyone, then people will despise me. They will insult me. They will take what is mine. There will be no one who will respect me. Paul answers, the Lord is near. Do not worry. He will supply you with all things. Do not be anxious. Desire no more than you have. Covet that spirit from him. Thank him and be grateful for all that you've received. Oh, what a great expression of faith against all temptations and unbelief. If we believe that in all of our need... To have enough for soul and body was quite sufficient. This gentle spirit is a powerful witness to the world. It's a manifestation of the fruit of the spirit in our lives. It's an attitude and disposition that we must strive to possess in our Christian lives. In verse 5, we're also given this reassurance that the Lord is at hand. Now, Paul could be saying one of two things here. On the one hand, he may be referring to the return of Christ, the second coming, where he will return in judgment as a reassurance that the future of the Christian is certain and secure. That is a motivation for us to model a Christ-like reasonableness or gentleness and helps us put at rest our anxieties of the future. The other way to interpret this is that God is near to us. Some English translations, maybe your Bible in front of you, will even say, the Lord is near instead of at hand. It is certainly true that for those of us who have faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit abides in us. We also know that God cares for His children. He is aware of and cares for us in all of our struggles. Now, I said that there were two ways to interpret this, but in my study, I actually found that there's a third way, and that's kind of a foot in both camp. Maybe they're both true in some sense, or we're not really certain which. I found this quote helpful from another gentleman whose, whose name I will uh, butcher here, Jean Daly, a French pastor from the 17th century. Um, one of my friends after first service came up to me and he said, maybe you should quote people named John Smith. So, uh, too late to do that today. So Jean Daly, French pastor, has this to say. The Lord is at hand. The apostle makes this point in order to help preserve Christian joy in our minds. For nothing disturbs us joy, so much as the vain and useless care that we bestow on things of earth, as the success of our plans, labors, and so on. And because the source of this disquietude is an ignorance of the providence of God, he declares, the Lord is at hand. This may have respect to either time or place. To time, then the Lord will soon come to judge the world, and that great and terrible judgment in which all people shall be confronted together is not far distant. To place, then the Lord is not far from every one of us. He is the witness and the arbiter of all human affairs, observing all things that occur in order to assist us in our need, repressing the excess and punishing the wickedness of our enemies. End quote. Bible-believing Christians may differ on how exactly to interpret this, but I think one thing is really clear. The Lord at hand, the Lord is at hand. This is given to us to be a comforting reminder to the believer in Christ. As we move on in the text, take notice that in verses 4 and 5, we're given the positive commands to rejoice in the Lord and that our reasonableness be known. In verse 6, we're given a negative command, to not be anxious, followed by the exhortation to take our concerns to God in prayer. I confess that when we were first assigned our passages and I got this this text, I offered uh, somewhat jokingly with Dan Konzig to swap with him because I was afraid of this part right here to not be anxious in anything. And I thought to myself, I wonder what God is going to do in my life between now and when I have to preach this sermon <laughs> to cause me to really live this out. Well, God is faithful and there's plenty of things and I won't tell you all about this morning, but you'll get a little bit. <clears throat> Joy in the Lord is the deep down confidence and trust that God is in control of all things, but anxiety is the opposite of trust. Anxiety is the future oriented lack of trust in God. Again, some of us will struggle with this sin more than others and to different degrees, but at some level, at some point in time, we will all tend to fail in this regard, especially if we lose our focus on the gospel and its implications for our daily life, and we're distracted by our present circumstances and the cares, the worries that we have for tomorrow. The scripture is clear here. We're not to be anxious about anything. Now we will clearly fail, I'll say that again, at different times and at different degrees and give in to the temptation to be anxious, to doubt God, to doubt His care for us, His love for us, that He really is in control, that His plan for us really is good. Our circumstances often bring out the response of our flesh, which is to try and control the situation or to simply be consumed with anxious worry. Some of us, like me, we like to do both. God wants us to respond to difficult circumstances and uncertain future, not with worry, but with trust. Trust in the character of God, our loving Heavenly Father. Trust in the power of God, who knows all things and is in control of all things. Trust that what the Bible says in Romans 8 is really true, and that God works all things together for our good. Romans 8:28 says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Trust that there is no power in earth or hell that can separate us from the love of God. Romans 8, 38, 39. For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus highlights this foolishness of anxiety for God's people in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6 verses 25 through 33, a little bit of a longer passage, but uh, follow along, please, on the screen or in your Bible. Matthew 6:25 through 33. "Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I need to be reminded of these things personally, because I will live in such a manner at times that shows that I've forgotten them. Rather than responding to bad circumstances with faith and trust in God, I forget to run to Him in prayer. Instead, I worry, I fret, I try to plan my way around a bad situation. Like whenever our toddler seems just hell-bent on being disobedient and disruptive, whether it's in the store or the restaurant or, heaven forbid, nap time. <clears throat> um, no matter what Tara and I try to do to discipline her and shepherd her heart. Um, like uh, about a month ago when I took the week off of work and my wife and I are moving stuff into the U-Haul in the driveway, and we get a call from the realtor that a contract fell through. We're not actually closing on the house on Thursday. We need to find a new buyer. When a dear lady that my wife and I ministered to in youth group who later rejected the gospel, she knew it very well, but she rejected it and turned away from Christ. When she's killed in a drunk driving accident. When I worry whether my kids will will turn to God in faith or will they reject the gospel their entire lives. I don't have control of that. It's a worry. Big or small. We all have things in our lives that try to make us forget what we know about the love of God, the power of God, and the peace of God. Paul, on the other hand, tells us that in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. The apostle's not describing different kinds of prayer here, but he's just being very expansive in describing what prayer is. When we come to God thanking him for his grace and mercy given to us by the gospel, and casting our cares and anxieties and our needs upon him, we are blessed with the gift of his peace. The Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. The writer of Hebrews, um, also talking about prayer, says in Hebrews 4, 14 through 16, Another name that I will uh, pronounce creatively is the Protestant reformer Huldrych Zwingli. He describes the peace that the world offers versus the peace that God offers in this, quote, "'The peace of the world is when everything is prosperous "'and successful according to fleshly desire, "'for this is what the flesh values and appreciates. "'But the peace of God is tranquility, "'a security and a joy of the Spirit "'that comes from faith in God.'" It persists and consoles, even in the midst of afflictions. This surpasses all other experience and rational comprehension. That is, the flesh is incapable of grasping this. For this feeling comes from God and is unsurpassed. End quote. When we turn our back on sinful anxiety and turn towards God in faith and trust in prayer, we receive His grace. Sorry, we receive that, but we also receive His peace. This piece is a great comfort. <clears throat> uh, to give you an example of this piece in my life, um, when my wife was pregnant with our first daughter, uh, her blood pressure was getting pretty high towards the end of her pregnancy. So the doctors decided that we'd go ahead and, and induce labor, and so we did that, and everything went great. Labor went pretty easy, I think. And uh, <laughs> first child, and I'm a man. Let's be honest here. Um, my wife's a really tough lady, and <clears throat> she made it look easy. We had this beautiful new baby girl, six pounds, seven ounces, nice and healthy. And um, it was, they're kind of going through their their little checklist of, um, you know, post-birth things. The nurse takes her temperature and realizes that our daughter, Clara, her temperature's a little bit low. So she gets some blankets out of the, the warming oven that they have at the hospital there and tucked her in really tight against mama with these warm blankets. And then a couple minutes later, they took her temperature again and it was still dropping. So they put her under a heat lamp, and that's whenever they went ahead and they they took a blood test on her heel and to take her blood sugar reading, and it was nine. And if you're like me you didn't know what that means, it means really, really low. So the nurse did it again and got an error on her machine. It was too low to register. So while the doctor was wrapping up with my wife, I held our newborn girl and walked her down the hallway to the special care nursery of the NICU, And that's where she stayed for 12 days. And the doctor's theory, I say theory because they never really could give us a diagnosis, is that her body was probably producing too much insulin, and it was just flushing the sugar, flushing all the energy out of her system. She's really lethargic. Um, It got to the point where she had to have a feeding tube. It had some really enriched formula. really stank. It was filled with calories and sugar. They had her on a feeding tube with, so she continually received that food. She had an IV that had such a high dose of glucose in it, the doctors told us that they couldn't go any higher because it would damage her arteries. And still, she had really, really low single digits and in the low two digits for her blood sugar readings. That was was a pretty scary time for us. First kid, our our present situation was terrible. You know, not what we were expecting. Um, I remember going home one time and there's an empty car seat. The back of the car that really got to me, because she was still at the hospital. We didn't know what the future held. The doctors, there wasn't a pill for it. There wasn't a a procedure for it. It was just we're going to flutter with calories so that she stays alive, and we'll hope she starts regulating her blood sugar. You know, could take a week. A week later, we kind of asked again and told the doctor, you know, work's calling me. They want me to go back to the office. I know you can't give us the time, but what are we looking at? He said, well, could be a week, could be a month or longer. If it gets to a month, we'll we'll transport her down to children's hospital. In that time, Tara and I spent a lot of time doing all the diaper changes, spending as much time as we could holding her. Um, We also spent a lot of time in prayer. And I can tell you, especially looking back on it, God filled us with his peace. It was a peace that surpasses understanding. It was a peace. The source wasn't from us. It wasn't from a counselor. It was from God. Even though our present situation was terrible, we had no idea what the future outlook was. God comforted us with his peace. But the peace of God, it's not just a comfort. It's also protection as well. Look at verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This word guard is actually a military term. To paraphrase the Vines Dictionary, um, the peace of God is a protection by the inward garrisoning of the Holy Spirit. So think of soldiers garrisoning a fort or however you visualize it, being, you know, protecting. The peace of God is a protection by the inward garrisoning of the Holy Spirit. We tend to think of peace as a passive thing. But the peace of God is active. It's active in our lives. It's active in its source. It comforts us. It guards us. It protects us. Our hearts and minds need to be guarded from distrust and anxiety. We need to be guarded from unbelief. We need to be guarded from fear. This is what the peace of God will bring to our lives. It's spiritual peace. The world can't comprehend it, and our circumstances cannot overcome it or overwhelm it. Looking back, I can see how God gave us that peace when we were in the hospital. Uh, Peace was a comfort to us. It protected us from despair, disbelief. And uh, also, again, in hindsight, we can see it was a powerful witness. As I said, most of my family are unbelievers. Whenever we'd have grandmas and grandpas come and visit, oftentimes, it was my wife and I were the ones that ended up comforting them. It was because God filled us with his peace wasn't continuous. There were times where we broke down. But that's the peace that God offers that surpasses understanding. In light of this peace from God, Paul, led by the Holy Spirit, he calls us to be in action. In verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So think about these things. That word think, it's translated a couple different ways in some other translations um, as meditate or dwell. So to give you what what I'll admit is a a really corny example, I really like ice cream a lot. I think about it a lot. I love banana splits, sundaes, shakes, root beer floats. If it's ice cream, I'm in. You know, ice cream on top of a brownie? Great, get rid of the brownie. I'll take the ice cream. Now, I think about it a lot. And sometimes when my wife and I are enjoying that nice calmness when the kids are down and finally asleep, uh, sometimes she'll ask me, what are you thinking? And I realize I've been quiet for a while. And more often than I really care to admit to you, my answer to her is, I was thinking about ice cream. (laughs) My wife, being a loving, wonderful wife, will often offer (laughs) to go fetch me some ice cream. I have to watch that a little bit. So, I know that I'm weird, and I'm, but at the same time, I think we all have something like this. Maybe it's not ice cream for you. Maybe it's politics or sports or golf. Uh, like I said, I'm a banker, but I'm, I'm not a golfer, which makes me a minority. The way those guys talk about their tea time, it's the way I think about ice cream. <laughs> but as much as I like ice cream, and I think about it often, this is not the kind of thinking that Paul is charging us to do here when he says, think on these things. It's not to be a shallow or cursory thinking, um, just as we're distracted or going about our day or bored. We're to carefully dwell and meditate on these things. It's part of our Christian walk. How do we know what is pure? How do we know what is lovely? How do we know what is worthy of praise? Well, the Bible tells us what's true. The Bible tells us what's lovely. The Bible tells us what's worthy of praise. The Bible, God's word given to us, is the filter we use to discern what is from God and what is from the world. This list of good things directs us right back to the Scriptures. But the list is not an end in and of itself. We're not simply to you know, think happy thoughts or you know, whatever the, the, the charge is from the world but nor are we to hide away from the world, merely focusing on the scriptures, treasuring them, studying them. Because if we did that, we'd be failing to obey God, to live in fellowship with other believers. We'd be failing to be a witness in the world. Another way to put this is to use the words of Paul to the church at Colossae. Colossians 3, verse 1 through 3. If then you've been raised with Christ, so he's saying here, if you're a Christian, if you have turned to the cross in repentance and faith and received the forgiveness of your sins, if then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. This would include not just matters directly addressed by the special revelation that we have from God in the Bible, but also what we call common grace. Common grace is just that grace from God that's given to all people. You don't have to be an unbeliever to partake it, to enjoy it. You know, the blessings of even an unbelieving family like mine. I love my mother dearly. That's part of God's common grace. She's not in the faith. We live close to Estes Park, Rocky Mountain National Park. I can guarantee you there's a lot of unbelievers up there right now just in awe of the beauty, the majesty of creation. Even if they don't see it as creation, they're still enjoying that common grace from God. Same thing with Grand Canyon, all these amazing wonders. An unbeliever can treasure a newborn child. And they can appreciate the wonder of ice cream in all of its various forms. That's what drives sales. They're they're part of that too. But we know that the source of all these good things is God. We give Him the glory. We give Him the praise as we go about our daily lives As we're thinking about these things, we reflect on how these are from God. Our dwelling on this wonderful list is meant to prompt us to action. Again, not only limited to things that we consider spiritual, such as Bible study, listening to a sermon, singing praise music, enjoying fellowship with other believers. We can think of God when we see the power of an afternoon thunderstorm pounding hail down on our Subaru Outback for the second time in six weeks. And on the house, we're still trying to sell. We can act on this list when we're in fellowship with other believers, just talking, enjoying a meal, sharing parenting struggles. That's what we do in my community group. A lot of us have young children. We're still trying to kind of figure it out, and there's a lot of stories that involve poop. There really are. But we could think of these things when we hear political arguments about trade policy, abortion statistics on the radio. Every facet of our lives is involved in this. The key to godly living is godly thinking in every aspect of our lives by focusing on what is pure, what is lovely, what is true, what is just, what is honorable, what's worthy of praise. In verse 9 we read, What you've learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Paul encourages the Philippians, and by extension, all of us here today, to practice these things. He encourages us to press on in the faith. He commands us to take hold of this precious peace of God, this gift, and live out our lives in a manner worthy of the gospel, for our good and the glory of God. This word practice, it's not referring to the way you practice and then you're able to pass a test, or the way you, you know, you got training wheels, and they took them off one day, and you practice enough and... Now you know how to ride a bicycle, and that'll never change. But like a a lawyer practices law, and a doctor practices medicine, so a Christian should practice these things. It's an ongoing practice. We can't achieve perfection in this life, but is the direction of our lives consistent with our profession of faith in Christ? In this letter, Paul repeatedly points to himself as an imperfect example And Christ as the perfect example to follow as we live out our Christian lives. We see what it means to follow Paul's pattern of life from the scriptures, but unlike the Philippians, we weren't able to ask him a question in Bible study. We weren't able to witness him reconciling brothers that were at odds with each other. We weren't there to learn from him firsthand and, and see how he witnessed unbelievers despite persecution, despite suffering. We know of many of these things from the Bible. We don't have that firsthand example like the Philippians do. But what we do have are our own imperfect examples in our own lives, in our own day and age. In this church here, we have pastors who strive to live for Christ and encourage us to do likewise. We have community group leaders we can look to for an example and ask questions of. We have the witness of mature saints and this church body that we can watch and follow as a practical example of what it means to press on in the faith. I want to be clear here. This passage is given to the believer. This passage is given to the believer who has already received the forgiveness from God and already has a loving relationship with him. Paul is commanding the Christian to be obedient to the God of peace in light of our salvation. The gospel is not opposed to working, but as opposed to earning. We say that a lot here. I love that saying. It reminds us. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But with our salvation, there is something for us to do. We're to love one another. We're to press on in the faith. We're to share the gospel with unbelievers. We're to pray for our political leaders. All these things. Our obedience does not earn favor with God or cause him to forgive us. Christians obey God because God first loved us we obey because we are already saved. We obey. We practice these things because we rejoice in God, we trust in God, and we receive the peace of God. We should all of us work to follow the imperfect examples among us and be ready to serve an example to younger believers or someone new to the faith, to our children, to a watching world and show them what it means to rejoice in God, trust in God, and receive the peace of God, regardless of our circumstances regardless of worries for the future, developing the habitual practice of Paul, rejoicing in God, trusting in God, and living our lives having received the peace of God. Pursuing God daily and living for Christ day by day. And we have this wonderful promise at the end of the passage, the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I praise you for your amazing word. And Father, I thank you for this body of believers you've brought together this morning here in Windsor. And Lord, I pray that you would would do a work in all of our hearts by your spirit. I pray that you'd give us a joy and a contentment in all of our circumstances. Lord, please call us to you, cause us to flee to you in prayer when we suffer, when we're anxious, when we worry, and in praise of all the wonderful things you've given us and given to this world. And I pray, Lord, that you'd give us your peace, that you'd comfort us, that you'd protect us, that you'd help us to walk in this. And Lord, I pray that as we go about our week this week, um, that we would have that discernment, that we would see what is from you and what is from the world. And I pray that um, through all the circumstances of life in this fallen world, the peace you give us would be apparent to others and that we would have an opportunity to share with them your wonderful gospel. We thank you for the gift of your son. It's his name that we pray. Amen.